Pastor Todd, thank you, church family. Um, thank you guys for gathering with us, watching with us here this morning. Um, my name is Eric Baker. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission Church and I had the opportunity and privilege uh, to being the primary teaching and preaching pastor here. And so we just want to say thank you all uh, for coming and for being with us today as we have gathered to worship the name of Jesus above everything else. Uh, we continue today in a sermon series called Fight the Drift through First. Corinthians, and today we're going to be looking at a, a, a well-known passage by, by a lot of people if you've grown up in church, um, and uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 9. Now, before I read the passage, or as you're turning there to the passage, what I want you to do is either make a mental note, or even if you're taking notes here this morning, is I, I want you to think back. And so for some of y'all, it's going to be like, you're going to think way back, all right? For some of you, man, it's been a few months. For others of you, it's been a few decades, all right? So I want you to try your best. I know we all got COVID fog, all right? Let's try to think back a little bit, and I want you to think back to the day, the week, uh, the month, the season, maybe, the year um, that you came to realize that Jesus is who he says he is, that you came to realize that Jesus died on a cross, was buried, and that he was resurrected, and that in faith, as a gift from God to you, that you turned from your lifestyle of sin and have placed your faith, your trust, in Christ and Christ alone, all right? Now, in the church I grew up in, that's when they would have said, now, brother, ha, ha. And then they wipe your forehead because of the sweat. And you say, when did you get saved? Right? That's what I'm asking. But I Baptist it up a little bit. Okay? Do you remember that? Can you think back to that? When did you get saved? Uh -huh, uh -huh. Right? When did Christ redeem you? When did he save you? All right? Everybody got that? You don't have to have an actual day, and some of you do, right? I, I cannot tell you an actual day. I can tell you a season in my life. I was 19 fall year, freshman at Western Kentucky University. I can't tell you the exact time. I can't tell you what kind of PJs I was wearing. I can't tell you that sort of stuff, but you follow me. A day, a time, a week, a month, a season. Everybody got that? All right? Now, I pray for you that the, door, the joy of the Lord, the, as the Bible would say, that he would return to you the joy of your salvation on that day. Do you remember it? Right? Now, I want you to think, how long ago has that been? And I, I literally want you to calculate in dog years, people years, whatever you use to formulate numbers. Like, how long would you say that you have been a Christian? Everybody got me? Now, I don't want you thinking about the person next to you. I want you to be thinking about you. And this morning, we're going to do a heart diagnostic of our relationships with Jesus. And I want you to keep those kind of kickoff questions to the forefront of your mind. And some of you, by the grace of God, you've been following Jesus longer than I've been alive. Praise be to God for that. While others of you have, again, you've been following Jesus. He saved you a few months ago. While others of you profess to follow Jesus, and yet he does not know you, and you do not know him. 
So let us keep that at the forefront of our mind again as we work through this passage today. As we read this passage and then as we hear this sermon, I, I want you to do, you're going to for a checkup this morning. Does that make sense? Like we're doing some blood work today, going for our yearly checkup, a spiritual checkup of where we are. Is that okay? All right. So in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9 is where we're going to be covering here today. Follow along with me. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. And while there is jealousy and strife among you, you uh, are not you of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are, are you not merely being, excuse me, are, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul, servants through whom you believed? As the Lord assigned each to each, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if many of you know my story, you know that uh, my entire life I've pretty much had some major issues, as I, you just saw, uh, with reading. And it was really bad when I was in the first grade. I was one of those kids that had to do the first grade twice because I could not read. Um, I was actually in Hannah Vanderpool's grade. My mom and daddy held me back. I did it twice. So I lost all my friends. Um, and they graduated a year ahead of me. Um, but I mean, I've just always really struggled, especially again, early on with reading. And so um, I uh, was always given the task as we were during the 80s of growing up in elementary school with this thing called Book It. Remember Book It from Pizza Hut? Like you read a book and you read so many books and you get the sticker and then you take it to Pizza Hut and they give you a personal pan pizza. Now, confessionally, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I lied a lot on the book it uh, to get the free pizza because I love a good pizza. All right. And I'm depraved, wretched, even little cute little kid that I once was. But there was probably two books that I grew up or grew reading my entire life all through elementary school, middle school and high school. I think I read two books. Uh, one was uh, like Sounder, which is about a dog because that's cool. And the other book that I think I actually made it through because it was so crazy was a book um, by William Goldling called Lord of the Flies. Came out in 1954 after World War II. And even to this day, it is a book uh, that I, I enjoy as far as fiction goes. It's a really dark, gritty, 
deathly book, and it came out kind of as a satire to some degree of a genre of books like Treasure Island and Swiss Family Robinson, and the guy even took, the, the author even took characters from those people, or their names at least, and placed them on his own. As he was trying, like George Orwell, if you've ever read 1984, uh, I'm not, um, was, was trying to say something about the politics and the culture of the time. All right. So in this book, at the very beginning, a plane is falling over an ocean and it is struck by a bomb because a war is taking place and it's filled with school age boys. All right. And the plane goes down on a deserted island and lo and behold, all of the adults die. Now, most of these kids are from like a Christian or a Catholic school. They have some sort of upbringing in regards to religion uh, within the Catholic church. Even part of them are a part of the school choir. All right. These are choir boys. Half of them are. And at the very beginning of the book, they're just exploring the island. Imagine you're on an island. It's filled with fruit. It's got fresh water. It's got all of these adventures. And as a fellow Goonie, um, this just sounds like an absolute awesome place. And at the very beginning of the book, everything is going great. They're enjoying each other. They're building friendships. I'm sure they're building forts. Uh, all these sorts of things. As time goes on, they begin to lose lo- more and more clothes. They start making, like, uh, they're painting their faces. They're making staves and knives and, and all these sorts of things, and spoiler alert, as they continue to go on, uh, they begin in some ways to lose their humanity. They, they, they lose their religiosity. Um, they, they lose what it means to be human and become very animalistic to the point where they start killing off each other, these young boys. Now, what's interesting about this is that at the end of um, the the book is that they're about to kill one of the main characters, this tribe. They've broken up into two tribes. And now at the very end, they're essentially chasing after one of the main characters, and they're trying to kill him. They've already killed his best friend, Piggy, which is a great name. And they're trying to kill this young man. And as they kill this young man, they, he's running toward the beach as hard as he can. He's, everybody's crying as these other boys are chanting and running after him like a tribe trying to kill after him. And when he gets down to the beach, lo and behold, what is pulled up at the beach? A military vessel. A ship. An army man. A group of army men step out onto the beach as the chance of these other boys come running up with their staves in hands. And they essentially drop all their weapons and they all start bawling their eyes out. Why? Well, there's lots of reasons and But one of those reasons is because they had lost themselves. They had lost their ability to cognitively, emotionally connect. They had lost what it meant to be human. They had lost what it meant to care for other individuals. But as soon as the adult stepped onto the beach, it all came rushing back to them. 
The authority had arrived. Maturity had arrived. An adult had arrived, and so they had went from living in this very divisive, very wretched, very dark way of living to immediately being broken and realizing that they had lost themselves. In many ways, this passage in Corinthians is very reflective of that. It's reflective of this story, but the, the story or the church that is in Corinth, yes, it has children within it, but it is, it is not a church made up of only children. It's a church made up of adults with their kids. It's, it's, a, it's a group of people who um, have been together probably anywhere between three, four, five, six years at the time of this writing. And yet Paul is addressing severe problems that is taking place. There's great divisions within the church. These people who are supposed to be brothers and sisters in Christ are now devouring each other. They're dividing, dividing with each other. Chaos has just consumed the church. Why? Because they have drift, drifted away from the centrality of Jesus. They have drifted away from his mission, from his teachings, from the way that he desires for Christians to live. Why? Because the cultural influence that they are baptized in is also penetrating the life of the church. They, Yes, they want Jesus, but they want the world too. They have become arrogant. They have become prideful. They have become greatly deceived. They have chosen worldliness over the word. Yet, as we heard from Pastor Justin last week and from the Word of God last week in chapter 2, they are considering themselves to be very wise. This is a church that seemingly has everything going for it. As we're going to get to eventually, there is the, the gifts of the Spirit are working in this church. There's great orators. There's this, they, they know all sorts of things. I mean, they're coming to church and they are having church. They're having an experience. And yet, this church is far from being obedient to Christ. And this is a major problem because these adults are actually very immature. They have lost what it means to be a Christian. They have been deceived. They have been blinded. And so therefore, all of this chaos and again, division just ensues as it begins to just fester. Not from what's happening outside, but what is happening inside of this local church. And so Paul, who loves this church, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes these sections to diagnose the spiritual maturity of the church that he had planted probably three, four years prior. See, when Paul was there, remember, he goes to the city of Corinth. He is one of just a few, maybe Christians, that are in this very pagan, immoral place. 
And Paul begins to plant the gospel. That means he began to preach the gospel. He began to share the gospel, as we learned early on in our introduction to this series, is that, that he would go to first the synagogue where the Jews were, and he would preach the gospel. And when they would rebel against him, or when some of them would get saved, he would take them along, and he would continue to disciple them. Then he, he would begin to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That's what you and I are. And they would begin to be saved. Jesus would begin to save them. And so in this church, there are Gentiles, there are Jews. And, and while Paul is there, while the authority is there, while the Christian, mature Christian is there, man, God is bringing forth revival for about 18 months as Paul is preaching, training, discipling, pastoring, raising up elders, and raising raising up ministers to engage in ministry in this city. He loves them. But now time has passed from when they first professed Christ to about four years or so to the reports that Paul is now getting. And there is a major Problems. Major problems. Inside of God's design of creation, right, there is something that's called like the life cycle. We have, what, conception, and then we have infancy, we have childhood, we have adolescence, and then yet you spend the majority of your time in what we call adulthood. Well, similarly, within the Christian life, uh, we borrow some of those same terms, to talk about each other, don't we? Is that right now in this room, there's probably somebody that is a non-believer. You're not a Christian. Jesus has not saved you, and we pray that, that he would. We would pray that you would come to repentance and faith in Christ and in him alone. Right? But then what do we say? When a person goes from death into life into Christ, we say that they're what? A new Christian. We even use the terminology, like they're a baby Christian, don't we? Like, you ever been around somebody? I love being around you. Some of you are my favorite people when it comes to this. It's like, you know absolutely nothing. And I think that is a beautiful stage. Like, you're hungry. You want to know. It's like, man, if I drop the name Silas, you have no idea who that is. And I don't want you to feel shameful of that. Why? Because you're a baby Christian. You're a new Christian, all right? You went from death into life, and because of Christ Jesus, you went from non-Christian to baby Christian, and the expectations for us who are more mature or older Christians, what should it be toward that baby? Delicate, right? Some of you have newborns in your homes, or you're preparing for newborns, right? And, and your first kid, you remember this parent, your first kid, you're walking around with like just just like, oh my goodness, it's like, you know, you, you, you've put foam on everything in your house, right? Everything is locked up, and man, you're just, you're just packing this child like it is just the most precious thing, because what it is it? It's, it's precious. It's a baby child. It cannot take care of itself. You remember that second child, though? You're like, go play in the street. I need a nap, right? You're picking that kid up by the leg, right? You would have never done that. You're like a lioness grabbing it by its neck. I mean, it's like, right? It's like things begin to change, right? But why do you care so much? Because that, that child is an infant. 
Now, Paul addresses this in his passage. He goes back to the past, right? Look at verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. As infants in Christ, we, we begin, again, to see this picture, even within Scripture, this whole life cycle, that there is a place of being not a Christian. There is conception, there is rebirth that the, Jesus would talk about, to be born again. You become a baby Christian. Typically, you know, you, you don't know much. You get maybe your first Bible. You get baptized during that time. But then there's a season of, of growing and maturing, and that, that is the expectation not only for us in this room, but also in regards to our relationship with Jesus. And Paul is very aware of this. He loves these baby Christians. I could not address you as spiritual people, but people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And isn't that how we treat our newborn babies? We want to be very careful with them in this stage. They're very fragile. The enemy is, is bombarding a baby Christian, trying to convince them that this is all hogwash. They still have the remnants of their former life that are heavily impressive on them, right? If, if, it's not that this can't ever happen or that Jesus never works like this, but if you're highly addicted to substance and substance abuse and Jesus saves you, doesn't mean that you hop in the car that day to go home and you're no longer drawn toward those substances. You're still thirsty for them. Whatever that life was before Christ, you're often still struggling with it after Jesus initially saves you. But the hope and the process of sanctification to become more like Christ is that through the, the progress of sanctification of Jesus working in our lives is that we become more and more and more and more and more like Christ. I mean, it's a beautiful picture. When Laura was uh, pregnant with both of our children, I, I told her, I was like, I don't know that you can get any more beautiful than this. And I meant it. Uh, to see her... Um, give and to wake up in the middle of the night to try to feed her kids was a beautiful thing. And there was absolutely nothing I could do. It was a beautiful sight. Don't you remember that, mamas? Daddies, you know, it could be a nightmarish for us, but mamas, they, they, they put that kid, that baby, it's still covered in goo. It's wrapped up like a gold worm, Right? And that doctor, that nurse sets that baby on, on your chest and you're just looking at that thing and you think that thing is the most beautiful thing on the planet. And dad's like, ooh, I hope it grows out of that. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's a newborn baby. Nursing, feeding a baby is beautiful in that stage. And you don't walk up to that new baby. The, the Beesons have a, uh, a little baby that's hanging out with them right now. And it's like, uh, you know, on, on that Friday when the Beesons went and picked up uh, this precious little baby, it, you know, as much as, as, as Eric Beeson probably loves Mountain Dew and chicken wings, he didn't try to feed them to the child. Because that's weird. You don't do that. Even in Kentucky. All right? 
What do you feed it? Milk. You feed that child milk. But as that baby matures, and I would have a whole argument for this, is that as that baby matures, as you get older, you should stop drinking milk. But you begin to integrate food, right? Substance. And at first it's mush, right? Mush in a can. And it's nasty. But as you're going, then you start with, with soft breads. And then you remember those little puffy things and you put them in their mouth, they disintegrate, right? You're, you're, you're training up this child so that they can one day sit down and pay, you, you know, you tell them, you can get whatever you want, son, and then you regret that because they get the most expensive steak on the menu, right? But you experience this, but this is the, the process. But, but Paul is using something from the past. He's saying, man, this is a beautiful stage. You are a child, an infant in Christ. And when I came, man, it was all about the ABCs of, of Jesus, right? Elementary teachings of Jesus. That's what you needed to grasp. But notice as he goes on, he uses some past experience to talk about their present reality. Fall along. Verse 2, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paul's, and are you not being merely human? Paul, in this text, is talking back to them that, that before they were Christians or when they were new Christians, they were real fleshly. They were worldly. Worldliness in the Bible is equal to also what we call flesh, like you're living in the flesh, meaning that you're living apart from Christ. And so in this part, Paul's talking about them, but I preached the gospel, Jesus saved you. We began to feed you milk. But the problem is, is that you're no longer necessarily in the flesh, but you, brothers and sisters in Christ at the church of Corinth, are very fleshly. You're being really drawn to, connected to, the things of this world. You got a little bit of Christ and a whole lot of the world. And Paul is addressing this, and I believe that he is doing so with much love and compassion. He has no desire simply to throat punch these brothers and sisters in Christ, but he does understand the reality of what is taking place. As many of them are professing Christians, many of them may even be Christians, but man, because of the divisions, because of the immaturity in the church, it is causing major, major problems, and he is astonished that four years after that moment when he first preached the gospel, that they have not matured, that they have not grown, that if anything, like he's saying, there's jealousy and strife among you. What are they acting like? Children. They're acting like little kids on an island who has no one to watch after them and make adult decisions. And this is a major problem for Paul. It is a major problem for the gospel. And brothers and sisters, it is a major problem for you and I as well. Essentially, he's saying they're still wearing diapers. 
Now, hopefully, all of us in here, I have no desire to, to be crass, but for the sake of the illustration, what Paul is getting at here is he, hopefully all of us understand that there should come a point in time where we stop nursing our children. It gets really awkward, doesn't it? That there does come a point in time where, where that relationship between mom and children should change. Well, they should not be being nursed anymore. And Paul is saying to them, in love, in truth, and in love, you are wearing diapers. You should be mature adults in Christ, but you are still nursing. And it is a very hard-hitting passage that Paul is saying there. causing major problems. And we're going to see this. It's not just that they're arguing over who their pastors were or who their teachers were or who was the better preacher or the better teacher or who wrote the better book or any of those sorts of things. Is that we're going to see time and time again over and over in this the, the immaturity and the childishness that is taking place within these people. The writer of Hebrews, we don't really know who it was. Many scholars believe that it was actually Paul who wrote the book of Hebrews. But in the book of Hebrews, we have uh, this passage. I think I have a, a slide for you um, so that you can follow along. And notice and compare these two passages. In Hebrews, there's a warning against what's called apostasy. And that's this idea of claiming something that you're in Christ and being able to walk away from that. Or not living according to Christ. And the author of Hebrews says this, about this we have much to say, and it is a hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Anybody in parents, anybody in parents in here got kids that are dull of hearing? For, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. Again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the world of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature and those who have their pattern of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Is he laying a weight upon the new Christian? Is he laying a weight upon the new believer? Is, does he have an expectation of a baby Christian that is just unable to obtain? No. Who is he addressing? Those who are professing to have been saved for a long time compared to others. The writer of Hebrews is saying, man, there is, there is a very serious problem within our churches, within our own hearts, that, that man, you ought to be teachers. Maybe you would say to us here at, at Mission is that, man, many more of you should be preaching and teaching the word. Many more of you should be a missional community leader. Many more of you should be teaching our kids. Like you should be to that stage where you can communicate, where you can teach other people to know about Christ. But the author of Hebrews, like the author 
what Paul, who wrote to the Corinthians, is saying, but, but you're not ready. And it's causing major divisions. It is causing major problems. The solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained. I love that word, trained by constant practice. Write that down. Trained by constant practice, and we're going to come back to that. Trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Paul's essentially saying, and the author of Hebrews is saying as well, is like, man, you got you to get off the fence. That you got to quit trying to serve Christ and serve the world. That you don't need to profess Christ and yet live like everyone else. Like there should be a great dependency, a desperation in you and I if we truly have a relationship with Jesus. And, and Paul is he's addressing this. He's saying, brothers, sisters in Christ, you, you should be much further along in your progressive sanctification, your progression of becoming more like Jesus and, and what's the problem is, is that there is great immaturity here. I think that we can, by this passage and other passages, say that if, if there's not a change within these people, what they're ultimately revealing is, is they really weren't Christians to begin with. They made professions, but it wasn't something that they truly possessed. Again, in America, you're going to have a hard time finding a person who doesn't claim to be a Christian. Now, they may worship the Buddha, too. You've heard of Muslim Christians, Buddhist Christians. And those are all counterfeits. They're not Christianity at all. We also call this what, what, what could be, and I, and I don't think that Corinth is there yet. I'm just saying that this is the way it's played out to the very end, is that they're ultimately revealing that, that they're not Christians. And Paul isn't ready to say that, but he, he is driving home the point. It's like, man, it's, being, it's very difficult, brother, sister, to tell whether or not you're a Christian. It's getting extremely tough. There's become this popular belief in American Christianity, and it's been around for several years now, and a lot of people will use this passage that I just read to you from 1 Corinthians to try to, to show that, um, that, tr that what they believe to be true, and I want to tell you real quickly before I go any further, um, it's not true, <laughs> but it's very popular in American Christianity. This belief is this, is that in American Christianity is that they, they believe in something that they call carnal Christianity. Now the term carnal here is another word for fleshly Christianity or, or living in the flesh. And maybe you even heard this, when I first became a Christian, this is the way that I was uh, told to share the gospel, is that you're trying to, to help people see that you know either you're a non-Christian or you're a carnal Christian. Well, what's a non-Christian? They're a person that doesn't believe in Jesus, hasn't turned in faith, follow after Christ, they've not been saved by Christ. A carnal Christian, I was told, was a person who professes Jesus, and Jesus has saved them, but their life has not been radically changed. So there's this idea in American Christianity that, that Jesus can save you, and then you can live the rest of your life however you want to live it, as Lord of your own life, but man, you're saved. 
And that's extremely popular in our churches. Is that we've taught some sort of idea as R.C. Sproul, the great theologian who is now with the Lord. I just love this man. He once said this, One of the great and ghastly errors, not just error but heresy, that permeates the evangelical world today is the doctrine of carnal Christian. The doctrine of the carnal Christian was first set forth in a theological framework that taught this. At regeneration, that means at the new birth, when you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit can come in and save a person without changing you at all. And that, my friends, is a lie from the devil, is what he's saying. He's like, that idea and that practice is not from Christ. It is not from his word. Now, we need to get this. We need to be theologically astute in this. When Jesus dies upon the cross, he dies for the penalty, the penalty of sin. Your penalty is taken care of, but the practice of it is, is possible for even you and I who are truly Christians. So I'm not saying that, that if, if, you're, if Jesus has saved you and, and you go out here and you lust or you lie or you, know, you, you do something absolutely horrible today that all of a sudden that you have lost your salvation because that is not true as well. But we also have to understand that if your life is my, if my life is characterized, if it's stylized, if it, if it's very practical that man, I look, sound like, think like, and practice the things of this world. And yet I claim to have Christ. Yet my life is marked more, and I'm not talking about a new Christian. If my life is marked more by the things of this world instead of the markings of Christ, then I'm not a Christian. And the hardest people convinced that they need saving are people who are convinced that they have it. And any time that a preacher preaches like this, it's, I'm just going to let you in to, to the wardrobe here and, and peek into Narnia a little bit is that typically what happens is, is that you fear is that everybody leaves that day wondering whether or not they're Christians. And the people who really need to be thinking, I'm not a Christian, are thinking all these people aren't Christians. Does that make sense? Is that a lot of people who have followed Jesus and are truly saved leave here going, I don't know if I'm a Christian. And the ones that are hardened to it, as the word says, they have become hard of hearing. That preacher ain't talking about me. The word isn't talking about me. It's, it's talking about all of them. And it's a serious issue. See, let's, let's go back. Remember, you're not saved because you're good enough. You're not saved because you're being nice. You're not saved because of your good works. You were saved in Christ alone, by faith alone. But when Jesus saves you, he places the Holy Spirit inside of you. That Holy Spirit will not lay dormant. That Holy Spirit is inside of you. It is the very power of God. He is resting inside of you as a temple and as we as the temple, as the church, that, that God's presence, the Holy Spirit, the power of God is inside of you. And slowly as it is, it is not quick. 
He is molding, shaping your emotions, your mind, your practices of this child, just like you would teach a child to mold them into adult. So when they leave your house, you hope and pray that they will remember all of the teaching and training that you gave them. That the Holy Spirit is that, that master inside of our life, our, that teacher inside of our life that is, again, molding and shaping us into Christ. Though the penalty of sin has been taken away on the cross, the practice is still there. But however, if, if we're truly saved, then, then, and if you've been saved for a period of time, then it should be very clear brothers and sisters, as Jesus would say, that we will know them by their fruit. That we'll know them by their fruit. We're not saved by our works. Everybody get that? You are not saved. I am not saved by our works. But salvation works. What James would say, right? A faith without works is dead. He's not saying that you're saved by what you do and don't do, but he's saying if you have real faith, if you've come to understand who God is compared to who you are, and then you humbly are going, Why in the world would Jesus save me? Then all that can do, because the Holy Spirit resting inside of you is lead you to a response of, I'm going to devote my entire being, everything I am, to a merciful God who should not have saved me, but has saved me. And in response, I want to live this way. So it's much different than you saving yourself by your works. But if Jesus has saved you, then we're, we desire to obey. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, the wisdom of God, is inside of us. In psychology and sociology, there is, uh, there's lots of books that have been written about this. Um, I even use some of it in talking uh, to my, my students, my freshman students especially, at WKU. But there is a condition that is in young people. And if you're, if you're older today, if you're uh, maybe an older Gen Xer or a, a, a boomer here today, I want to help clue you in to why there's a major distinction between the way that you think and the way that younger generations think. And it's because of what's known as prolonged adolescence. A lot of times for older generations, when you became 12, 13, 14, you know, 15, some of y'all were driving when you're like 14 or 12, right? You could run tractors and you're working in, you know, fields and taking care of farms. And I, I can't imagine, you know, the Twin Towers back here of Caden and Kaiden driving anything safely, right? Or running an entire business on their own. But it used to go from you were a baby to you were a child, then you were an adult. The idea of adolescence has actually been invented in our culture. And not only the teenage years, as we call them, adolescence, but what's also happened is, because I would say because of sin, Satan, and death, is that used to, you know, you become a man or a woman at 13, and then by 18, you're considered to be an adult. But that is no longer the case. It is prolonged adolescence. That's why more and more 20, late 20-something-year-olds, 30-year-olds are not married. They're living with their parents. 
Um, they can't, even insurance, if you've noticed that, you can keep your child into their late 20s on your insurance policy. Why? Because we've created a culture and a world where teenagers are allowed to be teenagers even into their 20s. So we send them off to college, which is also known as Neverland. This syndrome also has another name called the Peter Pan syndrome. It's for people who are in adult bodies, but they act like a child. And it has invaded the church. It has invaded the church where you should be teachers. You should be mature. You should know the Bible. Again, I'm not talking about new believer in here. I'm talking about some of y'all got a big old long date. Your dash between when Jesus saved you to right now is like several years. Two years, three years, four years, five years, ten years. Some of y'all have been Christians longer than I have been. And the gospel is reminding us this morning that there's a serious problem of the maturity of believers if you have been Christians for quite a time and yet you continue to act like a boy who can shave, a child. Notice, anybody ever get any arguments in here? Me and Laura don't, but y'all do. Uh, y'all like that judgment there? No. All right, so Laura and I, sometimes we get at each other. It's always her fault, but sometimes we have moments, Right? I mean, think about the disagreements that you have with your children or in, as husbands and wife, and when you really step back from them, how immature and dumb they are. You know what I'm saying? You ever done that? It's like, at the end of the day, this is really stupid. Most of the divisions are in the world. I mean, we're watching a man right now who's decided, mm, I want a country. You're mine, right? You know what that is? Adolescence. It's childishness. It's that mine, mine mentality. It's my toy. And again, it's invaded the church. Paul is addressing that. He's like, man, when you were new Christians, man, I, I gave you milk. You should be able to handle some meat. And when I'm talking about milk and meat are intertwined with each other. All right? It's that at first, man, people need to know that Jesus, who Jesus is, Jesus died on a cross, Jesus was buried, and Jesus was resurrected. You know what maturity looks like? Is that you understand the even deeper understandings and practices of what Jesus dies on the cross. So Jesus dies on the cross to save our sins, right? To forgive us. But also, did you know that it, there's justification there? There's regeneration there. There's uh, adoption there. There's glorification all up in the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But not only that we have this mental gymnastics, that we know a lot of stuff, or that we can read the New Testament in Greek, and that we can read the Old Testament in Hebrew, or that we know all of church history. I'm not talking about maturity to the point where, man, our heads get really, really puffed up, and, man, I just know so much more than you know. Because here's the deal. If our knowledge doesn't match our obedience, then we're still not wise. And yet you'll hear in churches all the time, well, I'm leaving because I'm just not being fed there. Just not, I'm not being fed there. It's not deep enough. Well, brother, sister, 
um, let us let us talk about the the maturing levels of both what you know and what you practice. As a kid, and some of y'all are going to think this is really weird, and that's okay because I'm weird. Um, some of you will get this, some of you won't. I remember when I began to transition from kind of like childhood into tweens or being a teenager, and I remember going to my mom because I was a very sensitive kid, I wore my, my emotions on my sleeve, go figure. Um, and I remember going to my mom because I felt like I was in two worlds. Like I could act like a child one moment and then do something very mature the next. Anybody in that phase with your kids? I remember that phase in my own life. And I remember going to my mom and saying, in tears, like ugly tears, Mama, I don't want to grow up. Because I understood the joys of laughter and freedom that often come with childhood, and then I saw a lot of the pains and anguish of becoming an adult. And man, that was a hard transition for me. And man, that's where so many of us can still be in our relationships with Jesus. Is that we don't want to grow up. We're still acting like infants. Oh, that's, you know, that's for them pastor kind. That's for those scholars and teachers. That's not for me. I just need to sit back here and let the preacher tell me everything that's in the Bible and then go about my business. Friends, there are 168 hours in a week. And if you and I think that for one hour of preaching on a Sunday morning will spiritually nourish and sustain you, you are gravely mistaken. Because you and I are being preached at all the rest of the time, except for when you're sleeping, by darkness, by sin, by Satan, by death, by division, by social media, all these things are constantly preaching at us and preaching at us and preaching at us and preaching at us. And, and, and the thing is, is that we've become very content with just, man, just give me that 20 minutes, that 30 minutes, that 45, or if you're really serious, that hour-long sermon, and that's all the Jesus, that's all the Bible, that's all the praying, that's all the singing I need, preacher. I'm really good. But did you know this about starving people? is that starving people get to the point to where they're no longer hungry and they don't even recognize it anymore. You're starving. Starving people get to the point to where they don't even want to eat anymore. And I'm afraid that that's how many in American church have become. Is that it's become so normal for us to be malnourished in the word and in practice as we're being discipled by the things of the world. I mean, we eat a buffet all week of darkness. And then come on Sunday morning and drink Diet Coke thinking that we're healthy. And we're not. So, in closing then what is our response to what the Word of God is saying here? 
quickly two things. The first one is, is I want to encourage every one of us that are here, is that's to pursue Jesus. It's to pursue Jesus. Well, how do we do that? By hearing and applying the word. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are a Christian here, the way that we grow and progress in our Christianity, progress in our maturity, not become hard of hearing, is that, that, that we study the Bible. Not just what you're getting here on a Sunday morning, but it's like, man, and notice I didn't just put read. But that you learn to study the Bible. And man, if you do not know how to learn how to, if you do not know how to study the Bible, then myself, Pastor Todd, Pastor Justin, people like Miss Cynthia, people like Hannah, people like Laura, other people within our church, I mean, they, they've got experience on, on how to teach. And if you're a male or female, if you feel uncomfortable talking to one of us, man, we'll, we'll get you connected to a lady in our church man, who, who, who knows the word and has some understanding on how to teach people how to, how to read the word. But this preaching on a Sunday morning or asking a few questions on a Wednesday night, they're both valuable, but they will not spiritually nourish you for the long haul. What else do we do? We pursue Jesus through prayer. We pursue Jesus through singing. We pursue Jesus through evangelism, through serving, becoming a member of the local church, giving of our, our time, talent, and treasure. We fast, we pray, we seek, we proclaim these sorts of things, that it becomes very just a, a part of the rhythm of our lives, that every morning, just imagine that we as the people of Mission Church, that, that there is some, some feeling that even while you're sitting down to have your personal quiet time, as you're reading through a passage or or journaling or praying for people in the church that, man, there are probably other people at the same time from Mission Church that are engaging in God's Word as you are. You must learn to be self-fed. As the plane is going down, what are we told? To put the oxygen mask on ourselves before helping the other people around us. And some of us are suffocating from the lack of the pursuit of Jesus. The second thing is, and as this passage tells us, is who brings the growth. Pastoring, pastors planting the gospel in you, that's a great thing. Other disciplers or, or books or Christian books or, or, or all these sorts of things, man, that's, that's like Apollos. That's watering you. But who brings the growth? God brings the growth. The first thing that we should do is pursue Jesus. The second thing, as we're pursuing Jesus, what do we do? We trust God for the growth. In the mundane. Do you get that? It is God who brings the growth. But one thing's for sure. He's not going to bring the growth if there's a lack of pursuit of Christ. He brings the growth in the pursuit of Christ by the praying and the reading and the studying and the fasting. And, and again, I, I've had very few moments that have, they've just sat down at the table and they've been just overwhelming these experiences. And yet, I'm placing my faith, my hope, and my trust as irregular even for your pastor. This is a daily struggle for me to make the pursuit of Jesus above all other things. I am, I am not greater than you. I can, man, I can go days and be like, you know, I, other than studying for my sermon, I've not really read the word or prayed for you or even for my own family. Notice what I didn't say. I did not look at you, nor did Paul look at you, and with an angry face go, grow up. Now, sometimes we got to do that to our kids. <laughs> 
I just need you to grow up a little bit, just a little bit, right? That is not what Jesus is doing here in this passage. He's not looking at us angry-faced, you know, grow up! That's not what he's doing. Because if he did, who's responsible for the growth? What's he saying? He's saying mature, yes. And he's saying, pursue Jesus, pursue Jesus, pursue Jesus. But in all of that, we've got to trust that whether it's it's a deep study into what's happening in this passage, or, or man finding a, a verse and just hanging out there, that whether it's a, a five-minute devotional or a five-hour devotional, that we're trusting Christ to grow us in both of those. Make sense? I hope it does. I hope it does. We pursue Jesus through the spiritual disciplines as they're called. All the while, trusting God for the growth. So, friends, brothers, sisters in Christ, Are you a Christian? And if you are, where's your maturity level? Is that fair? So where's your maturity level? And we probably all have areas that we need to repent of turn from, fight the drift in. And we also need to be reminded of this, is what does Jesus say? Let the little children come unto me. Disciples trying to shoot away the kids, right? What does Jesus say? Let the children come to me. Not so that you and I can just remain really immature. I don't think that heaven is a giant playground where we all turn into little kids. But Adam and Eve were made mature. I think we'll go to heaven and be mature because of the power of Christ maturing us. But there is that humility of coming to wherever you are right now, I don't want you to be shamed and beat up. I want you to recognize the source of growth. And his name is Jesus. Let's pursue him. All right? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy, for your grace in our lives, for your loving kindness, Lord, that you have shown us and continue to show us. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen.